The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. Carbon footprint's down 80% already. And we're building all electric buildings. We're renewable energy based. Target, for example, to be net positive in energy was 2030, but we're going to get there probably this year. Well, welcome back and welcome to part B of our discussion with Susan Lord Hurwitz, the CEO and Managing Director of Mervac. There was so much gold in the discussion we had with Susan, we had to break it into two parts, part A and part B. And welcome to part B. All right, well, let's move to the topic dear to both our hearts, um, sustainability. And we do recognise Mervac as an absolute sustainability leader. But it hasn't been easy, has it? I'd, I'd love you to take me through the challenges you and the business have faced to, in getting to, to where you're at at the moment. It uh, certainly has been and will continue to be a journey, both culturally and technically. And uh, We put together our first This Changes Everything sustainability strategy back in 2013, and we put out some fairly bold targets such as being net positive in water, waste and energy by 2030. And in the same breath, we said, and P.S., we actually don't know how to do that. And people told me I was mad because apparently you're supposed to put out targets that you know how to do, which I don't think is the point of ambitious targets because ambitious targets take you into new territory. You meet people you wouldn't have met. Now, we, we, like, we try and be a really porous organisation on the outside and say to people effectively, come and toil in our garden with us for a while. And so we started down this path and started making real momentum and gathering up the things that have been done inside the business for years and putting them together in a strategy that hung together that people could see. Sustainability is not the job of the ESG department. Sustainability is everybody's job. But if you cast your mind back to the, that period, I literally had investors telling me, could I please stop talking about sustainability, which is advice I declined to take. But you wouldn't have that now. That The conversation is not the ESG department of an investment company speaking to our sustainability person. It's the portfolio manager making the decision, speaking to the executive team, which is a completely different conversation. So there's been a, a massive shift, I think, in the last eight years around people's recognition that we live on a very fragile planet. We've only got one of them and we should look after it. So that has been a, a real shift, I think, and it's not seen anymore as this binary, you can do this fluffy feel-good stuff or you can make money. The, the, the two go hand in glove together. Uh, so yeah, they, so the, the first challenge was persisting in the face of people saying, look, just shush, please, about that. And then the, the second challenge is we tried to do too much. We had like 26 objectives and it, it's impossible to have impact when you are doing 26. And they were all good things. There was nothing wrong with them. But we learned over the, the course of the next several years and then the relaunch of this changes everything in version two to take our principal focus down to six areas, have really clear targets for those six areas and really focus so that we can make a big impact. And our target, for example, to be net positive in energy I was 2030, but we're going to get there probably this year. We are carbon footprints down in our established uh, building scope one and two, but we're down by um, 80% already. 
Um, we're, we're building all electric buildings. We're renewable energy based. Uh, so we, we really have made big inroads. Water and waste are a lot harder. Look, I think it's really interesting what you what you say because when we go through the investment process at Ethical Partners with clients and others, we, we run through um, our financial criteria, the ESG components, and it's there's a big chunk that is integral to the process from from the very beginning on various components around ESG. And at the end, people say, well, that's not ESG investing. That's just normal investing. We say, well, it's normal to us. It, it, it will be normal. It should be normal. That's what investing is to, to take into account all manner of factors. Um, and many of those most important factors are, are risks and value-oriented um, ESG components. So I think that's, that's really interesting the way you've put that. What's been the biggest sustainability challenge? What component have you found the most challenging um, that you found hardest to make progress in? Is it around supply chain integrity and modern slavery? Is it around getting to net positive or is it waste minimisation or is there some other component there that, that really stands out as being really tough? They're, they're all reasonably tough, all those ones there. Uh, Energy is probably, climate is probably the easiest one in, in a sense because it's a well-worn path of how you measure things and how you can make things better. Uh, we're working really hard on waste at the moment from um, a number of angles. We're already divert over 90% of our construction waste away from landfill, but the last 5 to 10% is really hard and you have to get into the circular economy in order to get rid of that last um, nine to ten percent, and we're doing some really interesting stuff around uh, new materials made out of waste material with a, a collaboration with Professor Vina Sahajwala at University of New South Wales, for example. Lots of work on modular construction, pod bathrooms, all sorts of things around waste. But waste is very tricky. Water's tricky as well. Uh, and then I would say, from the in the S of ESG, we all know instinctively that a walkable, low-crime, livable community, whether it's a, a vertical community or a horizontal community, is better. It's better for people's mental health, for their health outcomes, for a whole manner of things. But how on earth do you measure that? And we've had two goes at measuring. Uh, one go with a consulting firm, and we've been working more recently with Social Ventures Australia, and it is fiendishly difficult to work out how much is this better and in what way can we manage it than if we hadn't done this thing or this this community didn't exist. So I think conceptually and intellectually that's the hardest, uh, but you've, that list you, that you reeled off, they're all hard. There's nothing easy in that list. And does that, does that kind of link in with your vision, Susan, in many ways that, that you want to build or leave cities and urban spaces um, for the Australian community that are livable and workable and make people feel good and sustainable. Is, is that, does it all come down to that um, from a big picture perspective? I think it does. We, we've just completed our strategy review for this year and we've shifted our language slightly. And this one definitely I haven't said publicly before, but we're shifting our language slightly to talk about being a creator and curator of places and experiences. And those four words are all important. So you create them, but you also have to curate them uh, by either long-term management or how you set them up to curate themselves as, as places where people are living or working. And it's not just the place. It's not the built form. The built form is there for the experience of the built form. Uh, and so, so, yes, absolutely, it is uh, thinking about how we leave a legacy 
which does make people's lives better in an enduring way. And certainly we we really want it to be real and not be green theatre in any way. I think people can smell inauthenticity a mile away. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, certainly from everyone here, congratulations on the work that you're doing. You you really are at the forefront of um, work in the sustainability space and real estate and long may it continue. We, we look forward to the continued engagement with you and the and the broader team, of course, on uh, on the future there. Um, a couple of other things just to round up before we get on to some standard questions. Um, I, I do note that you were awarded the runner-up position in the AFR's Most Powerful People in Property in 2020. Two questions. D- do you think you can take David Harrison out this year and get to number one? And also, what do you think Darren Steinberg thinks about being two places below you? Well, Matt, I think you know that I have a long-standing policy not to talk about any other CEO or any other company. This is a very gossipy industry, and I decline to be part of the gossip, so I'll pass on that question. Thank you very much. I think that's the only answer you could give, really. Now, shifting gears to some other questions that we ask all our guests on um, on this podcast on leadership, investing and other things. What, what's the most important aspect of good leadership that's most often overlooked in your view? Oh, I think the, the, the way that you have to craft a leadership style that is, that is authentic to you. I think sometimes people can think that there is, there's a leadership there's a leadership school and you follow that school and that's how you be a good leader. But there are lots of different ways to be a good leader. So I, th- I think that the personalization of your own leadership style, I think is sometimes overlooked by people searching for the next CEO self-help book to read about how, how I should lead. And there are pl- those many, many good ones, but you have to make it your own. There's, I would be hard pressed to lead in any different style than the one that I have. And that's interesting it, it, and pretty important too because you, you know, people are in the positions they're in because of their own values and characteristics and that essentially drives your own style. That's, no, that's a really interesting way of putting it. Just looking at entrepreneurialism uh, and, and I know there is some the, – the thinking at Mervac is, is industry leading. How do you keep that culture – um, of entrepreneurialism rather than being an institutionalised type culture as the company grows. So how do you keep the innovation um, moving um, despite getting bigger? It's a very interesting question and I have been thinking about it recently because Mervac is a, a very agile organisation and quite fluid in many ways, but at the same time is a grown-up ASX50 company with all the things we need to do around that. Now, Our Hatch Innovation Program, which has won multiple awards globally, is a a really important way of keeping us open and curious around new and different ways of doing things. And we set the program up many years ago, spent a whole year setting it up, actually, before we leapt into doing anything. And uh, it's it's certainly not a sit on a beanbag, look out the window, poof, new idea arrives. It's quite disciplined uh, particularly for engineering types that want to go from problem to solution in the next breath. Our innovation process makes you sit with the problem for a very long time, which is quite uncomfortable sometimes for people. It's a quite a different mindset. Uh, but because we've now trained something like 200 Hatch champions along the way, you know, we've got 
hundreds of people in the business working on innovation missions of some sort or other. It just keeps that mindset of of questioning why. And if you ever meet a hatch trained person, they will why you to death because they keep down into what's really going on here. And it never is the thing you think at the beginning. And so, so that, yes, they're working on an innovation mission, but that becomes the way that they think and they take that into their day job. And one of the really interesting side benefits that I had no idea was going to happen from the hatch process was when we gave people the tools on this why questioning and the expectation that you would question everything, no matter who was in the room, because in your hatch team, there's no seniority. They went back into their day jobs and thought, well, hang on, why are we doing that? And, and spoke up. Whereas before they weren't speaking up, they were saying, well, the senior person must know what's best. So I'll, I'll just be quiet here. Uh, it completely, it was actually a breakthrough moment in our culture when people took their hatch behaviors and took them into their day jobs. Okay, so faced with two equally qualified candidates, how do you determine who to hire? Um, it's a, So by qualification, I'm going to exclude culture from that definition because it's about cultural fit to me and that, that, is, um, that is the most important thing that we can find, people who are, who are going to fit into our culture, who believe what we believe, not in some homogenous cult-like way, but you know, you would be very uncomfortable at Mervac if you thought the business of business was business. It, it wouldn't be a good fit. Uh, so character, culture, uh, and uh, I think those are the, that's how I would split between two equally qualified candidates. Well, that's pretty, pretty clear from your answers previously as well. And do you mind mentioning to me when you failed at something and what you learnt and maybe how that set you up for success later? Yes. So I was thinking about that, that question. Uh, the one I would pick was when I was at NGPA, I was trying to raise a special situations fund. Now, I'm granted I was trying to raise it over the um, global financial crisis, but nevertheless I failed to raise this fund. And I remember very clearly having had a long roadshow day with my pitch in the US going up the West Coast and arrived at uh, somewhere in San Francisco, did make my pitch, went to the hotel, next day got back to the airport and the, the person I'd be pitching to rang me and said, I just want you to know that's the worst pitch I have ever heard. I'm like, great. Mm. <laughs> Thank you very much. So completely failed um, to do that. Um, in hindsight, Lucky failure for all those investors because we would have been investing money at precisely the wrong time. So in the end, that worked out pretty well, uh, but it didn't feel good at the time at all. Um, and I took away from it resilience and keeping going, uh, trying to trying to learn, well, why was that the worst pitch you've ever heard? And, and give me some feedback, which I can work on rather than just it was really terrible. And so so that is, that's one, but there are many. And in fact, in our hatch um, program we have so many ideas that are in the failure graveyard we call them that we perish them we get to certain points in the in the idea development and we say we say shall we proceed or perish and there are hundreds and hundreds that we've perished because it seemed like a good idea but when we tested it, it didn't work or uh, got a further stage down and then customer acceptance wasn't what we thought uh, so there's it, we really try and embrace failure failure is the the wrong emotion now, um, I, my, one of my children had a teacher once that said, if you're not getting things wrong, you're not learning. Mm. 
Yeah, and, and what's the most um, amongst those things that didn't work? What was the most common investment mistake you see repeated most often? I think failure to understand that the that there are actually cycles, because when the market feels good at the top of the market, there are always poor decisions made and we we were very conscious to pull back from acquisitions well before the peak of the market we do take some criticism from the investment community and analysts around that uh, but we uh, we 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 think that if there's a peak of the market it's far better to stop before the peak than after um, because there's a lot of money lost on that first bit of the downside so going on too long not not stopping and stopping is often the hardest thing to do. I remember when Stu Penkless took over as the head of residential, the first thing he did, and this was at the absolute top of the resi market in hindsight, the first thing he did was he pulled us out of six or seven transactions, which we were very close to. And it was a hard thing to do, and he wasn't Mr. Popular internally, but if we had proceeded with those, I think they would now be impaired because the risks were all wrong, we were taking on too much risk, the pricing was too high, uh, very courageous decision-making from Stu on that. So not stopping, I think, is the most common investment mistake. And, and where do you think we are now in the residential cycle? Um, just kind of, you've led me down that little path there. I think people are fascinated with your view. Well, where do you reckon we are? From a, I know from a land acquisition perspective, you, you don't appear to be buying a whole lot, which goes back to what you're saying, but from a sale price and stock perspective, or where do you reckon we are? It's one of those very strange things, isn't it? Who would have predicted during a COVID crisis that the established housing market would perform like it has without migration? Because people assume that the housing market is is held up by investors who are largely you know, migrants and investors in Australia and investing, it turned out not to be true. And people diverted, I think, funds from other things to upgrade where they were living with the view that we're all spending so much time in our homes, our homes have got to work harder for us and people uh, change their their buying habits about it. Uh, so I don't have my crystal ball here today. I think apartment prices will go up because the gap between apartment prices and established housing in any given catchment is the broadest it's ever been. It's like a 50% difference between a three-bed house around Green Square and an apartment at Green Square. Uh, so people are liberating equity out of their homes and living in a a comparably sized new apartment. So I think there's continued upside there and continued upside probably in the, the land market. And you know, everybody last year was saying, well, you know, when all this stimulus comes off and when um, JobKeeper comes off and when the home buyer stimulus comes off, then we'll see a decline. That didn't happen either. So it's been a little surprising, uh, which just means we need to go as fast as we can to capture the market while it's there. I think the gap between apartment and house prices is absolutely going to close, and it's going to be a it's going to be driven by a practicality of trying to find something in the area you want to live in, and not being able to afford the house, but being able to afford the apartment, and then migration will come back in the future. I don't think we're at zero forever, so I yeah, I think that's absolutely going to happen. The gap has, as you say, never been wider. I think for 30-something years or since stats have actually been compiled. So it doesn't feel right and I'm sure we'll close. Have you have you changed the way you look at risk given what's happened? Have you changed the parameters or the framework um, given what's happened in the last 18 months? 
Uh, no, I think our risk processes are reasonably robust. We're always trying to refine them and make them um, make them be live rather than a, a process with tick, tick the box exercise that you have to do every so often in a rhythm of corporate life, but to make them really, really real. So and now I think we're always trying to push the boundary on risk mitigation. So we've got this process that we call DOOR, design out our risks to, you know, because if you cannot have the risk in the first place, that's the best place to be rather than the mitigant you have to put in place to prevent it. And so we, we've taken that to a new level and how, how people all across the business participate in the DOOR process. You don't have to be an expert on construction or development to think about what could go wrong. Uh, so we're always trying to push that and you know, obviously we're in an industry where we could cause real harm and so we, we spend a lot of time that safety is the first thing as a, a key risk first thing the board considers every meeting is the first thing that ELT considers every single meeting is safety is the number one agenda item what advice do you think you'd give you 21 year old self and I must admit I have borrowed this question from a podcast that's got just a few more listeners than this one but I think it's a great question it is a great question and I, I surprised myself when I thought about this question because I think the advice I would give to my 21 year old self is actually to have children sooner that I didn't have my first child or daughter until I was 34 because I thought it would derail my career and of course it didn't and that as challenging as children can be, especially when people are homeschooling, I have a, lot, a ton of empathy for parents with young kids homeschooling at the moment. But as challenging as kids are, the joy that the three of my children brought into my life, my husband's life, uh, I, I don't know why I was worried that it would cha- it would cruel my career because it, it it didn't. So I would say to my 21 year old self, have children earlier. And I would say, don't take 12 weeks maternity leave, take more time. Now, at the time I was, when my daughter was born, we were living in the US and the US parental leave policies are just dreadful. And six weeks was the standard. And I took 12 and I thought that was the height of luxury uh, and flexibility. But now I look back on it, that's just crazy. So I would have children earlier and I'd take more parental leave. That's really interesting. I didn't know that was going to be your answer, but it's the exact same conversation my wife and I have all the time. Um, my wife had our kids at 35 and 40, and we thought that um, career and everything else was all-encompassing, and it was at the time, and I know everyone's circumstances different, but that's absolutely what we would have done as well. I didn't know that was going to be your answer, so that, that's absolutely fascinating. What wakes you up at night? What worries you? Probably the mental health of people at the moment. Not much worries me, to be honest. I, I um, not that I'm blasé about things, but I, I'm, I'm not a worrier by nature. I like to control risk and I like to make sure we've got all things in place, but I don't endlessly worry about things, particularly about things I can't control. So I, I can't worry about COVID because I can do nothing about it. So I, I make, I don't actually listen to the news. I don't go onto the Herald website. Uh, I don't. I don't listen to commentators because I want to fill my head with stuff I can proactively make a contribution to or control, um, not just fill it with worry thoughts. But what would wake me up at night at the moment is the mental health of our people and people in general because there there is genuine um, suffering in our community, particularly for more vulnerable communities and lower income 
communities who, it, this is all right for you and me. We can sit in our nice houses and we have resources and our children all have multiple devices. And that's not the case for millions of people. And it, it, we made a donation to um, the Addy Road Community Group the other week of $50,000. They're feeding people in Western Sydney who cannot feed their families. And so, the, so mental health and the effect on young people is profound. So that's what I, I worry about the most and the effort that we can put into doing whatever possibly we can do, not only for the mental health of our own people, but supporting people who are in genuine need and whose life trajectory may be well be different now because the kids haven't been in school for a year and a half and they've got one computer between three kids and it's that's a dreadful place to be as a, as a parent I can only imagine I probably can't even imagine and so mental health of people uh, would be would be one that's a really sobering reminder for everyone this has been a very unequal pandemic that, that, that that's for sure if you could just name one person who's inspired you the most in any aspect of your career who would that be somebody I've never met but a, a writer called John Kabat-Zinn and in the 1970s, his doctor, he started the mindfulness movement at a hospital in Boston, I think it was. And he was trying to treat people with chronic pain who couldn't be helped medically. And he was laughed at and he was ostracized from the medical community, but he started effectively what we now call mindfulness. And if, I, you know, he's, if, if I could invite someone for dinner, I would love to meet this guy because uh, he was so convicted that he could change people's outcomes around chronic debilitating pain using being present. And I'm hopeless at it. And I work really hard at trying to be present in what it is that I'm doing at this moment. And uh, he, he's got a book that he's written called Wherever You Go, There You Are, which uh, I think is a great mantra to live by, uh, that you know, all you have got is this moment and let's not waste this moment thinking about the old moments or worrying about the ones to come. I will look that up and get that book. Thank you, Sue. Now we really are finishing and this is a, a game my nine-year-old loves to play with me, so it can't be really hard, can it? I'm going to give you an either or choice and you just need to answer back immediately um, with one of the choices. Does it make sense? Yes, let's go. All right. So for an incremental dollar of capital right now, now my nine-year-old wouldn't have asked that question, but I'm going to ask anyway. For an incremental dollar of capital right now, build to rent or office? Easy, build to rent. All right. Work from home, work full-time in the office or hybrid? Hybrid. I think that was quite an easy one. And this is also very easy. If you had the choice of one dinner guest – um, and it can't be the gentleman we just spoke about a moment ago. Would it be Alan Moss or Dick Dusseldorp? I would pick Dick Dusseldorp because I never met him and I, I, I met and admired Alan Moss tremendously uh, over the years, but I, I would love to ask Dick Dusseldorp how he shifted the contract, the social contract between labour and capital in a really profound way that nobody had done before in the 1970s. And I would love to be able to go back in time and ask him what drove him to make that groundbreaking shift. Yeah, you started the model. Now, to know a lot about something or know something about a lot? 
Well, I think as a CEO, I dangerously do know something about a lot. And so I often find myself in a position where maybe an analyst or an investor is asking me a question about something. I think, please, not one more question because I'm out. I don't have any more knowledge on this topic. This is all I know. So I have to go with know something about a lot. All right. The final one, rent or own? Is this for personally or in general? You can make it either. I'm going to go own, but with the caveat that if the rental experience provided a secure home reliably for people, there's pretty strong evidence that renting isn't an inferior financial outcome. But that doesn't exist much. There aren't many options. Oh, look, from anyone who's rented from an individual landlord, I, I think the concept of renting from a professional landlord um, on a larger scale will have significant appeal. So I've got no doubt the asset class works, if not only for that alone. Uh, absolutely. And you know, the, there are residents that are live indigo apartment building in Sydney Olympic Park who bake cookies for the on-site management team every week. Like when did anybody ever bake cookies for the residential landlord? Nobody ever. <laughs> that certainly doesn't happen often. Look, Susan, we have covered a lot of ground and I think listeners will be absolutely fascinated with your philosophy, how you've dealt with COVID, how you have really, I guess, driven a real sense of purpose within Mervac over the last nine years. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and really, really do appreciate your time for being on the Good Investing Podcast for Ethical Partners. Thank you, Matt. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.